3: Uh, watch your step here, Molly. I haven't been down these steps in a while.
1: Well, you don't see many storm shelters these days.
3: Well, it used to be a civil defense shelter, uh, as you'll see when we get down into it. Of course, there's not much need for a civil defense shelter anymore.
1: Now, there's not much need for a storm shelter in California either, Seth. Wisconsin, where I'm from, we had half a dozen tornado warnings in a summer, and we really could have used one of these. Hang on.
3: Okay, where's the light? It's right in, right in front of you. Just, just pull on that okay, thing. hang on. Great. Well, I'm glad to see the bulb still works. (laughs) Thanks for helping me look for my collection of uh, model railroad stations, you know, Penn Station, Philadelphia, Newark, whatever, all made out of old popsicle sticks. And how old were you when you made these? Uh, 13. Okay, why are we looking for them now? Well, I mean, come on, that was a lot of work. And, you know, as a kid, popsicle sticks are about the only building material you have.
1: That doesn't explain why we're looking for them now. <laughs>
3: well, I, I felt the need to see these things. My gosh, I spent hours and hours working on them. I boxed them up. They've got to be down here somewhere. Okay. And uh, who knows what else we might find. Well, there's a lot of boxes here. This is big picture science, by the way.
1: And we're in SES Storm Shelter. In case there's any doubt, I'm Molly Bentley.
3: And uh, I'm the Storm Shelter owner. Proud, I might say. Okay, this place, by the way, Molly, was built in 1962. You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. No, I don't remember it. Well, well, it was a big crisis. Were you asleep or what? I I was not born yet. Oh, really? Well, you missed something. Anyhow, uh, it seemed more than one drill, and of course, you know, people were worried back then, so I would come down here occasionally and try and protect myself.
1: Okay, can I uh, I step here? Is this safe? That looks like that's going to fall uh, over.
3: I think it's safe. I mean, it either is or it isn't.
1: Thanks for narrowing down my options. Okay, well, the Cuban Missile Crisis, it sounds like a scary time.
3: Well, it was. I mean, nobody knew whether the missiles weren't going to go flying.
1: Wow. Is this a real civil defense hat?
3: Well, I don't know what's real and what's not real. It's, you know, a hat, and it says CD on it.
1: Okay, and what else do you have in here? This is a crank. This is a crank. This is a crank. This is a crank-driven flashlight. Wow, so you're all set.
3: Yeah, yeah. Crank-driven flashlight is something you can always use. This isn't stuff you use every day. No, this is stuff you only needed in an emergency if they dropped a bomb or something equivalent to that. Not, not this stuff I need every day. I mean, like this kit-built Geiger counter. I wonder if it still works.
1: Why did you just kick
3: it? To get it loose, I guess. I don't
1: know. All right. So tell me again. So we're looking for these model railroad stations built out of Popsicle sticks, right? Yeah. Um,
3: that's what we're looking for.
1: So it looks like you have a little bit of a tarp or something here. Is it okay if I walk on this?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's just to keep you off the dirt. Although, actually, some of it is ants. I mean, (laughs) look at them go. Have you ever watched those little guys carefully? I mean, they're so organized. I should be as diligent as they are. This storm shelter wouldn't have gotten out of control the way it is if I were.
1: Yeah, it is pretty messy. Well, we're not ants. Okay, let me go look over here. No,
3: wait a minute. Not so fast. According to entomologist Mark Moffat, otherwise known as Dr. Bugs, we kind of are like ants.
1: Dr. Bugs? Well, Dr. Bugs would find a lot of research material here. I mean, I don't mind the spiders so much, but ooh, the silverfish. See the silverfish?
4: Oh,
3: yeah. I don't Uh, like those. Yeah, you can kind of use them as shaving mirrors. Well, humans aren't like silverfish, but we do resemble ants. And in some ways, more than we do our primate cousins. And Mark Moffat has taken a lot of photos of ants for National Geographic magazine. And when I talked to him, I told him I heard that ant societies are supposed to be complex. But I wanted to know, in what
5: way are they complex? My elevator speech on this is that we may be closely related to the chimpanzee, but modern humans are much more like certain species of ants than more like chimpanzees. Chimpa- what chimpanzee has to worry about public health issues, highways and infrastructure, uh, market economies, voting, warfare, slavery? Ants do these and dozens of other things. And those kinds of issues arise because only ants and humans, among all the animals, have societies that can grow into the millions. And once you have millions of individuals have to work together, you, d- you have to deal with problems like these.
3: Well, you said highways. I mean, ants follow one another a- around in a long line, but do they actually prepare the
5: geography? It depends on the species. There are ants that build very complicated Roadways. One of the ones uh, that I worked on for my thesis is called the marauder ant. It's in Southeast Asia. They build very level roadways, perfectly flat, and all the different castes, the different kinds of ants from small to large get involved in this. The biggest ones are actually heavy-duty road equipment. They actually clear these things in a massive level, throw off obstructions on their highways and so forth, and then they follow these roadways in very effective ways. In the case of that species, the marauder ant, the inbound traffic takes the center of the road and the outbound traffic takes the outside of the road. So they don't have the left, right, rule that we have. They have a different kind of rule. But they have a rule. Well, it appears to be a rule. It's actually, like many things in ants, it arises through just the mass action of many individuals. In this case, the incoming traffic includes those that have collected food and sometimes very large pieces of food. And I don't know if you've ever tried to walk down a sidewalk where some people are coming at you with a piano, but you're going to go off to the sides. And so the outbound traffic gets shunted over to the sides, but ends up moving very efficiently down the sides, and the incoming traffic, therefore it doesn't have to deal with the ants coming in the other direction. And it all sorts out.
3: (laughs) It it sounds like a a, a good strategy. Now, one thing that I think everyone knows about ants is that they're not always friendly to other ants. Why do ants war with other ants?
5: Ants war with other ants, uh, like most species war, and that is because of resources. And let me correct myself slightly, because only ants and humans have what really should be called warfare. Uh, This word warfare has been applied to chimpanzees and other things, but really when it comes to massive engagements of group against group, only ants and humans have done it. And this is a product of the fact that these societies, once they get big enough, have this excess labor force. They can pour forth troops at each other. And I, I just did an article for Scientific American a few months back, which reviews many of the principles of warfare, and ants basically follow most of the principles of warfare that humans have invented. There's even a terrorist ant to blow up when it contacts the enemy. But the flanking movements, the way you allocate troops, how to get masses forward, it's a big deal in ants to outnumber the other side. This is one of the basic rules of warfare, is that if you can get enough individuals out there, Lancaster's rule of battle is that uh, you can just swamp the other side and kill them. It doesn't matter if your troops are even very good.
3: My goodness. This reminds me of some cheesy films about 20 or 30 years ago, in which the ants indeed uh, take on the humans, and uh, for a while they, they seem to win. So I wonder whether the ants are reading von Klauswitz. Maybe we should be re- reading their army manuals, if you will. I mean, do, do military people actually study ants? Maybe they should.
5: I uh, think a lot of principles about ants have been used by the military. I think they're aware of these kind of things. Uh, Net warfare and the internet kind of safety issues uh, have used researchers working with ants to apply some of the principles. So there is some value there. But it's true that in ants and humans, it is basically a product of larger societies. When you have Huge societies like ours, we may not have a lot of fighting going on right now, but we're actually outstripping our environment to keep our standard of living high. The question becomes, if you look at the ants and how they're having warfare, if we actually run out of resources, we're going to be in serious shape for, for warfare to reemerge in humans. In ants, you find warfare emerging as societies get large and they're outstripping their environments.
3: Uh, there are, are a lot of ants out there <laughs> i think everyone knows that uh, but give me some idea how many ants are there on the face of the earth
5: there's about a million ants per human coincidentally if this figure is correct and graduate students are probably still crunching the numbers somewhere it means that ants weigh about as much as humans weigh in the, aggregate
3: the, no, the, not not individually could you could you follow one ant around all afternoon getting his Picture and then come back the next day and know which ant that was. Are they that different?
5: <laughs> well, in so as you can follow people from the top of a Ferris wheel as individuals, uh, if we weren't dressed, it would be a little more difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> that one's wearing the big purple. The purple shirt makes it easier in the case of people, but from a distance, as we normally see ants, of course they all do look the same, and chimpanzees all look the same until you become Jane Goodall. But in fact, if you watch ants long enough, you get to know. There's some people always assume insects are really hard-working, like the the bumblebee and so forth, the honeybee, I should say. But uh, there are ones that work much harder than others. You, you, you get to know a certain ant's personality, as it were. There's the one that's always trying to get everyone else to get something done. It's like the person that always does the dishes. You can see these differences, and it's hard to pick these out in a huge society, as some ants have massive societies, as it's hard to pick out probably a person in New York. But... Uh, uh, they are there. The differences are
3: there. Let me get some idea of how perfected these little guys are. I mean, uh, when did ants evolve? When did they first appear on the Earth? How, how long ago was that?
5: Well, it's, uh, it's they were... Uh, they appeared at the time of the dinosaurs. It took them a little while to get going. Like the mammals, they stayed in the underbrush for forever. And then when the dinosaurs collapsed, the flowering plants exploded. And that's when ants really took off uh, because suddenly there was leaf litter everywhere. Before that, there wasn't a lot of like little things going on where you can hide in on the ground level and ant size. Suddenly all this leaf litter was there. All the things moved into the leaf litter. Ants could hunt. There were flowers flowers. flowers and nectar and all kinds of things happen. Really the demise of the dinosaur caused an explosion in all kinds of worlds for all kinds of things. Ants, mammals are just two. Well, okay.
3: So somewhere between, let's say 50, 100 million years, make the numbers easy, 100 million years of ants. Something like that. Okay. And and how long uh, does an ant live typically?
5: Well, a few weeks. The queen can live for years, of course, but the average ant actually outlasts the average insect. So, even though it's a hard-working life, they do pretty well as insects go.
3: All right. So, if they're 10 generations per year, uh, you're saying, you know, there have been a billion generations of ants. That beats humans. There have been 10,000 generations of humans. So, these guys must be pretty refined by now. They must be really good at being ants.
5: Yes. And to be good at being an ant doesn't necessarily mean being smart. So, In ants and in humans, societies depend a lot in many of their characters on the size, the population of the societies. And for both the ants and humans, coincidentally perhaps, societies vary over the same range. From a couple dozen and hunter-gatherer groups to millions in modern city-states, ants have the same range. So if you There are many species of ants that just have a very small population and those ants have to be as individuals, like hunter-gatherers in our human societies, they have to be much more adept in doing multiple things and carrying out things and they have to be careful. They can't make mistakes because there's only so many of you, you can't lose too many. So those ants are probably perhaps smarter. And when you get these bigger and bigger societies, you get more and more craziness. things accelerate, as you know, societies accelerate in humans as societies get bigger. This has actually been studied now. In ant societies, as they get bigger and bigger, everybody's moving faster and faster. It becomes like Times Square for ants. And uh, they can afford to make a lot of mistakes. So you see ants doing the stupidest things all the time in these big societies, going the wrong way and so forth. But because there's so many of them, because there's such redundancy, this is really their way of being creative. Ants trying all kinds of things, even though they appear to be mistakes, can lead to unexpected consequences. An ant might find a piece of food that everyone else would have missed and so forth. So the payoff for being precise is much better if you're in a small society. And for being uh, messy is better when you get to these bigger societies.
3: Is there a lesson for our future in this?
5: I have to admire those ants. They're fairly horrifying, these ants, and it includes a number of other invasive species that conceivably do the same thing or something close to. You know, they're very effective at escaping, getting around the world and conquering. They're the insect equivalent of a human being. And basically, we see what goes wrong when it's mindless and not controlled. And uh, the advantage we have, we're not as efficient as ants. We can all go our own way and make our own opinions and move into that cave. But at least our individual choices allows us to have <laughs> conferences and, and all kinds of discussions and scream at podiums and politics. And it's crazy stuff. It makes no sense. It would make no sense to an ant. But it still is perhaps what's going to save the world because it will take a human intelligence, not an ant-type intelligence, to have kind of the societies we have, the societies that conquer everything.
3: Mark Moffitt, thanks so much for talking with me.
5: Thanks so much, Seth.
1: Mark Moffat is an entomologist. Why isn't he called an antomologist?
3: I guess he's anti that. I, I don't know.
1: I know he's also a research associate at the Smithsonian Institution, and he wrote a book, Adventures Among Ants A Global Safari with a Cast of Trillions. And trillions, ah, trillions is the number I think I'd put on the um, number of cracker boxes you have here, Seth. It looks like you're prepared for anything.
3: Yeah, but those aren't crackers, actually. Those are my old films in there. Uh, Let's keep looking for the models. Okay. I mean, after all, who knows what we're going to find on Big Picture Science.
6: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check
1: out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
3: Hey, uh, Molly, would you help me move this tub of flashlight batteries? We have everything you need down here to survive a storm.
1: You mean like a can of soda? You don't have very big storms in California. It's not like the Midwest where you'd have tornadoes and you'd have to take shelter. Although there are earthquakes. Okay, I'll give you that.
3: Hey, look what you pulled out there. That's my 2.4-inch refractor. I could get sharp views of Venus, Jupiter. I even saw Pluto once with that thing back when it was a planet. You sure set your 2.3-inch refractor telescope? I I know my telescopes. It was (laughs) 2.4.
1: Okay, I'm going to set it down carefully. I'll move the box here of dehydrated... It looks like it says, I'll just move this over here. What do we know about Pluto these days anyway, now that it's been classified as an icy body, it's no longer a planet?
3: Well, uh, it has four moons, and it's undoubtedly covered in ice. But beyond that, we don't really know too much. But we're going to know more. I mean, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft, launched in 2006, not so long ago, is on its way to Pluto to get the first close-up ever views of our former solar system's most distant former planet. Uh, John Spencer is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, and he says, given that this is a nine-year flight time, the New Horizons craft is about two-thirds of the way there.
4: We're starting to close in on Pluto. We're somewhere between the orbits of Uranus and Neptune right now. We're homing in on Pluto, and it's, it's getting exciting.
3: Well, how exciting is it? I mean, is there anything to see between Neptune and Pluto? Uh,
4: there's not much to see from where we are right now. We can see Pluto. We, we take long exposure images looking ahead. We can see Pluto against the background stars. We know it's there. We're heading in the right direction. But most of the spacecraft is hibernating, and we wake it up every few months to check it out. Recently it's done a rehearsal of the Pluto flyby where we're going through all the maneuvers we'll do when we get there. But most of the time it's asleep, just biding its time as we close the distance to Pluto.
3: Now, when it finally gets to Pluto, it isn't going to hang out around the Plutonian, if that's the right adjective, system. I mean, it's going to fly right by. And why is that? We're going to fly
4: by Pluto at about 8 miles a second. We don't have enough fuel to slow down when we get there. We will take data very quickly as we go past, shoot thousands of pictures, fill up our big digital recorder in a very short period of time. But yeah, we can't
3: afford to slow down. We don't have that kind of fuel on board. Okay, so this is gonna be a quick thing. I mean, this is like, I don't know, being on American Idol. You know, you rehearse for months and then you've got, you know, a few minutes of uh, excitement and then it's kind of over? Well, it's all over
4: except for getting the data back down. We fill up our big, digital recorders and then it's going to take us several months up to a year to get every last bit of that precious data back down to the earth. So that's going to be an exciting time just the months afterwards seeing new stuff coming down from those precious few hours. Every few days we'll see something new amazing in the data stream. Now you've
3: mentioned the cameras, of course there are cameras on board, various kinds of cameras, so we're finally going to get a picture of Pluto, we're going to see what it looks like. If, if somebody held a gun to your head today and said, hey look, what do you think Pluto looks like? Uh, anything you could say about that?
4: I think Pluto's going to look amazing. The best guess we have as to what it might look like is pictures of Neptune's moon Triton that the Voyager spacecraft took in 1989. Triton is kind of similar to Pluto. Triton looks completely strange and weird and very exotic, and we think Pluto will be equally exotic. Can, can you tell me, describe what the, you know, Triton looks like? Uh, Triton is a world with all kinds of strange landforms we don't understand. Uh, It doesn't have many craters on its surface and craters are produced by random comets and asteroids smashing into objects over the age of the solar system. So the fact Triton doesn't have many craters means its surface is pretty young, which means Triton is alive, it's geologically active, it's resurfacing, covering up any craters that form. It's covered with ice? It's covered in ice and we think there are ice volcanoes or something like that on Triton. We see things that look like that on the surface. So Pluto will probably also be alive in the interior. We don't expect it to be just a cratered ball of ice like some of Saturn's moons, for instance. We think it's going to be a
3: very exotic surface. How long does the spacecraft spend close enough to Pluto that you can do these measurements? Will... Our really primo
4: data will be taken within two or three hours of the closest approach period. That's when we'll get our highest resolution pictures. But we'll have weeks on a approach when we'll get pictures much better than we n- have now from the Hubble telescope. We'll be watching Pluto rotating every day. It will get bigger and bigger in our field of view and we'll see more and more detail. It's going to be really exciting. So what's the smallest thing you'll be able to see? How, how small a, a feature will this camera be able to see? We'll be seeing things in our closest pictures down to about 100 yards across. We have a very powerful telephoto lens on our camera, so we'll be able to see a lot of detail. When Voyager f- flew past Triton, which is our best view of any object kind of like Pluto up to now, it couldn't get images nearly that detail. And we'll be get- measuring the composition, we'll be mapping the ices across the surface, and we'll be able to see patches of some exotic ice that are as small as a, a mile or two across. So it's really going
3: to be a spectacular data set. John, I've got to ask, you know, when this mission was conceived and launched, Pluto was still one of the nine planets of the solar system. Now, this thing is, you know, on its way, and suddenly Pluto is demoted. Does this demotivate you at all? <laughs> it I absolutely doesn't make any difference to
4: how fascinating a place Pluto is. It's good to have classification schemes, and there's a variety of Opinions on the project I should say as to whether this was a good change in the classification scheme or not But we all know it doesn't really matter Pluto is Pluto. It's its own thing It's going to be an amazing place unlike anywhere we've been before and whether you call it a planet or you call it a dwarf planet or something else Makes no difference to Pluto. It's going to be happy to see us and uh, it's going to be revealing wonderful things to us I'm sure so 2015 that's when it arrives that's right. Uh, July fourteenth, 2015 is our day of closest approach, and we've kind of been in a bit of a lull in the mission all these years, crossing the empty stretches of the outer solar system. Now we're starting to ramp up, and we're having more meetings, we're spending more time fine-tuning all the details of the mission, doing these rehearsals on the spacecraft to make sure everything goes smoothly when we get there. So. We're really starting to get into the mood that, yes, this is not some indefinite time in the future. This is really happening, and it's happening soon, and we'll be there. John Spencer, thanks so much for talking with me. Um, You're welcome. I enjoyed it.
1: John Spencer is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. He's a member of the New Horizons science team. Okay, Seth, where should I put this box? Can Uh, I throw this stuff out?
3: We should throw some stuff out. uh, Yeah, but not that stuff. No, I need that.
1: Hey, is that an original Frisbee? Uh, yeah. One of the first ones, huh? Well, I guess you <laughs> needed something to do if you're going to be down here in your storm shelter
3: or civil defense shelter or whatever. That's right. A space five feet by four feet.
1: You know what that frisbee looks like? Kind of looks like a flying saucer.
3: Yes, it does. Other than the fact that it's yellow plastic, doesn't have any green occupants.
1: Maybe you should have bought it in Roswell, New Mexico.
3: Yeah, it's been 65 years since that famous incident in Roswell. And even after all that time, Ollie, there's still a lot of people who think that aliens came who knows how many hundreds of light years to visit New Mexico and then crashed into the desert.
1: They continue to believe it's what paranormal investigator Joe Nichol calls the Roswellian syndrome.
3: Joe, when it comes to bizarre stories, uh, there are some that are clearly iconic when I think of UFOs and I get to think about UFOs just about every day, uh, obviously Roswell comes to mind. Now you've looked at these things not so much in terms of uh, whether they're true or false, whether aliens were really involved or not, but how the stories develop, why Roswell has become, if you will, the poster child of UFO uh, stories. You call this the Roswellian
2: syndrome. Well you have to, you have to recognize that Roswell is the holy grail of, of ufology. This is the case that if true, extraterrestrial craft came to the planet Earth, to the New Mexico desert and in, in the mid40s and crashed. And government uh, got cut the wreckage and the little dead bodies of the humanoids and hid it away at secret facilities and so forth and put out a false story that it was just a weather balloon. And we know now that that story was false. That is, it wasn't a weather balloon, What it really was. I'll lower my voice here. It was a secret United States government spy balloon. (laughs) But to all intents and purposes, that really wasn't an alien. And yet, many, many, many people have heard of Roswell, and they they pretty well know that uh, the government has hidden this awful story, and and, um, how do you explain it? As
3: I understand it, Roswell occurred in the summer of 1947. And uh, there were uh, right away a couple of newspaper stories, the first one saying that it was a flying disc, suggesting it was indeed an alien craft, and the second story the next day suggesting, no, it's just a weather balloon, as as you've said. But after that, I I believe that this story actually just sort of disappeared from the radar, if I can make that pun there. What brought it back to prominence?
2: Well, that's where, that's why we need a name for what what actually happened, and that's why we created the term James McGehee and I, and and McGehee is a former military pilot and an astronomer. We needed a name for this phenomenon because what happened is is that Roswell was effectively debunked and it went away. But then It didn't really ever go away. What it did was it went out of view, but it still stayed around as a kind of, like an urban legend will stick around and people talk about it and they've heard this and they share some information. And as increasingly elderly people began to misremember and confabulate and engage in certain mythological kinds of dynamics, there began to be this sort of very below the surface idea of this conspiracy and that there really was something there. And that was just a cover story about the balloons. And, And so what you had was you had the debunking of a story, then the story went underground for a long while, where it developed into a mythology and a conspiracy theory. And then all you need now is for somehow for it to come back. So you have guys doing a book and they come and ask leading questions of these old men. And pretty soon, uh, it's all back. How long was that after the incident? Oh, it was, it was many years, many years afterwards. And so now you have these elderly men and you have this, but you have this elaborate sort of bunch of urban legends all together. And so it comes back like a virulent strain of a virus. And, all of a sudden, if there's one book, then there are more books and there are TV documentaries and it's now the UFO story. And what we realized was that that didn't just happen at Roswell. Very similar things happened at several other important UFO sites, the same pattern.
3: Well, now, now give me the process here, step by step. You have some sort of incident. And there's there's some reason to think uh, this might be a UFO sighting. There's something that gives the incident interest, legs, if you will, in the beginning. But then it's debunked by officials or by whomever. It goes underground. It's uh, just sitting there, apparently, out of sight, out of mind. And uh, But a mythology develops, and uh, what, conspiracy? Something brings it back to the surface.
2: Right, and, and those are the basic stages. So it could come back any of a number of ways, but people doing a documentary, looking around for an interesting story or something. And that's all the trigger it needs because now you've got this sort of virulent strain, this, this powerful mythology just bubbling and simmering under the surface and just anything could almost bring it back to life. So this happened at other famous UFO cases like Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Flatwoods, Monster. A story in West Virginia, which I personally have done a lot of work on. Some schoolboys see a fiery UFO apparently land on a hillside at at Flatwoods. They go rushing up there. They, it's getting dark. They shine their light. They see this creature with sort of a face shape like the Ace of Spades and shining eyes and comes at them with terrible claws, kind of in a gliding motion and a high pitched hissing sound, i.e. Barn Owl. (laughs) <laughs> and so, the story is pretty clearly debunked at the time as it was probably an owl and a meteor, and very good evidence that that's right, so what happens It goes underground. but the people who saw it uh, kind of groused over they weren't taken seriously, and they you know and they tell people and and so on so it's it's under the surface, and then in comes at some point. Some ufologist looking for you know a career-making story, a story the government has covered up. This is almost always a part of this this plan, and so the the Flatwood story comes back up, but now it's a cover up, and it's um, theories about it was some kind of spacecraft and or robotic figure and so forth. What what we think is is helpful with all this is that we understand Roswell. We think pretty well. And isn't it interesting that several other incidents have the same kind of process? And the process, very understandable how it works, makes perfect sense. You can illustrate it with these other cases, but we don't explain all UFO cases by any means, but we're just saying some cases, we think it's helpful to call it the Roswellian syndrome.
3: Now, Joe, the thing about Roswell is that people who are into investigating UFO cases, most of them, or many of them in any case, don't consider Roswell a particularly good case. But the public does. That's the one they know about, Roswell. What did it for Roswell?
2: Well, I think Roswell's a little hard to to be so neat about. While it's true that a lot of ufologists now dismiss Roswell... There there are quite a few diehards who who seem to regard it as the possible holy grail of ufology. So it's not true, I think, that that everybody in the ufological community has just, just dismissed Roswell. I don't think that's the case, but it is true that it's very popular to the public, mostly because the public caught on due to the first wave after the mythologizing. When it it makes its comeback, there was a big, intense bunch of promotion for that. And they saw it in books and on TV and all of that. The fact that a little later, when it was really looked at, even some ufologists kind of walked away from it, it still a lot there. And so I think that it's still a useful model. Why? Because one of the elements of this seems to be that there are some people out there actively looking for the Holy Grail. I mean, they're really wanting to find, and this is, this is maybe two different groups. One is the, the ufologists who are really just convinced they just need to find the, the true case that's really going to you know, settle it and convince all the skeptics. And then there's this other group of sort of TV documentary makers who could care less whether it's true or not. But the point is, can we make a story out of this? And those guys are really, really cynical people. I've known many of them. They, they don't care. And if you start getting too particular and so forth, they'll say, oh, come on, it's just entertainment.
3: It sounds like uh, Roswell isn't going to go away and it's going to have a successor. I have to say finally that from the standpoint of Roswell, New Mexico, this was probably the best thing that could have happened to them. Yes, it's been good for business, hasn't it? <laughs> Joe Nickel, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank
2: you, Seth.
1: Joe Nickel is a senior research fellow for Skeptical Inquirer magazine. Careful, Seth. Careful. And perhaps the world's only full-time professional paranormal investigator. And, well, any luck on finding your Popsicle stick?
3: Station model. Station model. just (laughs) station.
1: Station model. Can we get some of this garbage out of here? Maybe it's behind this stuff. Is this garbage? What is this? That's
3: not garbage. This is all valuable stuff. Uh, Let's check back there in that corner, you know, next to the inflatable quarantine unit. (laughs) Coming up. As we continue to clean out my storm shelter, who knows what we'll find. It's big picture science.
0: From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines And it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Okay, we're closing in on my wood, wooden models. I can feel it. Boy, there sure is a lot of stuff down here. Okay, I
1: don't know what you're feeling, um, but I wouldn't touch too much of that stuff. It feels kind of moldy. Well,
3: you know, mold could be good for you. <laughs>
1: okay, listen, I've made a pile of stuff, all this stuff over here that we could throw out, if you're willing to throw it out. And so far, all that is um, is one box of clarinet reeds, a... oh. Uh, a pair of pliers that are rusted shut, and two cans of empty soda. you got to get rid of more than that, Seth. Uh,
3: You never know what you're going to (laughs) need.
1: You're a pack rat.
3: Well, uh, speaking of rats... Oh, don't say it. There are no rats down here. Okay, good. They don't do well where there isn't any food, or at least any edible food. Hey... Here's my portfolio of astronomy photos. I made these through my four and a quarter inch telescope. Man, look at these things. Look at the moon there. Isn't that pretty good? That's pretty good for a four and a quarter inch.
1: You sure it's not four and three quarters inch telescope?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know my reflectors. This is four and a quarter. uh, Here's one that I tried to get the moons of Jupiter.
1: This one's actually a great shot, Seth, but you didn't take this one. This is the famous Earthrise.
3: Yeah, well, I wasn't in a position to take that. This was taken during the Apollo 8 mission.
1: Okay. You were watching TV at that point?
3: Uh, Yeah, I I think we had a TV.
1: (laughs) It's a beautiful shot. It's a half sphere of the Earth. It seems to be rising over the horizon with the moon in the foreground. It's really an iconic photograph.
0: Yeah.
3: It was taken by William Anders in 1968.
0: So I'm Bill Anders, and I was a lunar module pilot on Apollo 8.
1: Otherwise known as an astronaut. Right, And you are the photographer behind the famous photo of Earthrise. Can you describe this photo?
0: Well, Earthrise is not a particularly good photo, uh, as photographers go, but it was the first photo of the Earthrise on the first flight to the moon. And I think it caught people's attention and became iconic in the sense that it showed the only color that we could see in the universe was our home planet, and taken over the stark, beat-up-looking uh, lunar surface. The contrast, I think, and the, the beauty of our home planet really tugged at people's heartstrings and emotions.
1: Some people might disagree that it wasn't a beautiful photograph.
0: Well, it's a nice photograph. I mean, I'm from a technical point of view. Okay,
1: you have been somewhat modest. Now, this photograph, you see a little bit of the moon, And then you see the Earth rising up, and you just see like a crescent of the Earth, or part of it is missing because it's rising the way that we see the sun rise or the moon rise, right?
0: We went when the moon was very new, and so there was only a small sliver of the moon illuminated when viewed from Earth. And and so the Earth, uh, when viewed from the moon, is just the converse of that. So it wasn't a full Earth, but it was uh, pretty much full Earth.
1: And some of the moon is in the picture, and... you weren't on the moon because in 1968, when you flew on the Apollo mission, you were orbiting, right? Right. We
0: were, we were the first to go around the moon.
1: And then was your assignment to take a picture of Earth, or did the moment inspire you, or what happened?
0: Well, photography was a tertiary point of the mission. The main mission was to demonstrate to NASA and those coming behind that you could actually send a spacecraft around the moon and get it back. And my good friend and our spacecraft commander Frank Borman thought it was basically a waste of time and adding danger to the flight to have cameras and big lenses and whatnot. I had a assignment of taking pictures of the lunar surface, mostly of potential landing sites, and they could calculate the albedo,
1: which is the reflectivity. Albedo yes. is the reflectivity, right? The mm-hmm. light
0: coming back from the lunar surface. So we didn't even have a light meter, and so we just set the f-stop depending on our longitude, which functioned of what time I had on my wristwatch. On our third revolution, we were startled to see this gorgeous orb poking its nose up over the lunar horizon, and everybody scrambled for a camera. Not at all in the flight plan. In fact, Frank Borman joked, hey, Henry, you can't take a picture of that. It's not in the flight plan. But even he grabbed a camera, and we started shooting away. We came all the way from the Earth to discover the moon, and what we really discovered was the Earth when seen from perspective of the moon.
1: When people back home on Earth saw the picture, what was the reaction? And had people seen the Earth from space at that point?
0: There had been uh, unmanned spacecraft that photographed the moon, Russian spacecraft, but not really good ones of the Earth or in color film. So this was sort of the first color picture of our Earth from lunar distance. And its beauty, its fragility, and its contrast to the lunar surface just hit a chord and actually, I think, uh, kind of kick-started or helped kickstart the environmental movement.
1: Do you remember what comments people said to you when they first saw this photograph?
0: Uh, well, the, the NASA uh, technicians thought that they had discovered life on the moon because the film emulsions were a little screwed up for the spectra, and it gave the moon a greenish look. Uh, they corrected that out later. But uh, people just seem to be impressed. This picture was picked by photography magazine Life and whatnot as one of the 10 most influential pictures of the 20th century and has become iconic. You know, luck is everything. I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, one of the f-stops I used happened to be the right one.
1: And when you were orbiting the moon, did you have any idea that the next year two astronauts would step out of their capsule and walk on the moon?
0: Well, of course, that was the intent of Apollo. We knew what the program was. It was to go up and jam a flag onto the moon and declare victory, which indeed we did expect Neil and uh, Buzz, with the help of Mike Collins, do in July of 1969.
1: Finally, Bill, if you had a chance to go back into space again,
0: would you go? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I've be- not become a particularly big supporter of the shuttle, but if they asked me if they want to have a- one more billion dollar launch to just take me up by myself, I'd say, sure, I'm ready to go.
1: Thank you very much for speaking with us.
0: Well, it's uh, been uh, really great to be with you. Thank you.
3: William Anders was an astronaut on the Apollo 8 mission.
1: Seth, this may be, ooh, I've got to be careful here, but um, this looks like this could be your box of models.
3: Wait a minute, let me get into it. Hold it. Well, you know, it's
1: very uh, delicate.
3: Yeah, yeah, so am I. All right, wait. Oh, that's that's they. That's those are the models. Look, 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 look. It's Penn Station, Newark, in popsicle sticks. Okay, so you
1: had a lot of extra time on your hands when you were thirteen.
3: Well, I, well, I did, but I, you know, I always try to be creative, you know.
1: Did you do more than just Penn Station?
3: You, well, there are a lot of Penn Stations. The whole Pennsylvania Railroad had Penn Stations. There must have been hundreds of them. I didn't do them all. I did three.
1: Okay, so you did three, and. um... You know, this suggests that you were actually a pretty creative when you were young, I mean, I think of you as a science person, but maybe not necessarily artistic, if that's fair.
3: Well, you know, I was always interested in, in, I don't know, drawing things and so forth. I wasn't very good at it. In building things, I loved to build things. I still like to build things. It's just very satisfying.
1: Well, you spoke to John O'Leary about creativity recently because he has the book out, Imagine How Creativity Works. And what did you ask him? Is creativity something that just comes to you? Do you have to work hard on it? What is it?
3: Well, I wanted to know whether you needed some sort of incentive, some sort of inspiration you know, this creativity,
6: is that the result of some moment of
3: inspiration? Is it that simple?
6: I wish it were. Um, I wish creativity were just about those grand epiphanies that come in the shower. And, And that's definitely part of the process, but it's not the only part. Um, you know, when you talk to creative people, people who are in the business and and do it every day, they often begin by describing their moments of insight, these, you know, these aha moments. And then if you press them, they're willing to talk, they confess about all the hard work they came after, about how, you know, they had this great idea, but then they still had to spend five years editing it, going through revision after revision, draft after draft, and that's the miserable part of the process. that part of the process, it's not romantic, it's not fun but it's just as important. So creativity isn't just about moments of insight. It's also about all the hard work that comes after.
3: Apparently, the dancer Twyla Tharp said that creativity is hard work and discipline. You have to have a routine and apply yourself, not just sit around and wait for a light bulb to go out. But on the other hand, while that sounds very
6: American, you know, diligence. 99% just perspiration.
3: Yeah, right, right. Just put your nose to the grindstone. Yeah. <laughs> That's the American way. And yet, and yet... We don't seem to value that stick to nearly as much as we do you know, the brilliant insight that somebody had. Is that just because it's a better story?
6: I think so. I think that's a big part of it. I think it's more fun to talk about the breakthrough in the shower. Um, it, it's less fun to talk about the obvious work that needs to be done. You know, Beethoven describes his musical notebooks going through 70 different versions of a single musical phrase before he finds the most beautiful one. Now, it's always much more fun to just tell the story about how you wrote it in the shower. But I think we have to also pay respect to the guy who's willing to go through 70 different versions until he finds the best one.
3: <laughs> well, what about um, brute force creativity? I mean, one of my heroes is Thomas Edison. Uh, but on the other hand, Thomas Edison wasn't really interested in theories about how things worked. He just tried everything. I mean, his invention of the light bulb was you know, kind of a brute force yeah. form of creativity.
6: I think brute force creativity is a noble pursuit up to a certain point, but I think one of the things the science of creativity teaches us is that it's great to just persist and persist and say, I'm not leaving this room until the light bulb is done, until I've found it, until I've invented it. But at a certain point, I think you're also just gonna be kind of running in a circle. You're gonna be wasting your time. You're gonna be squandering working memory and your attention on this problem because you're just gonna be stuck and there's probably gonna be a wrong answer. You just can't get past. And so what the science says is, invest in that grit, be persistent, you know, double down on that 99%, just perspiration. But then once you hit the wall, once you feel like you've stopped making progress, the most productive thing you can do is forget about work. That's when you need to take a break and, and go for a walk, play some ping pong, find some way to forget all about work.
3: I'll use that on my own efforts. I, I, the trouble is I'll think that I've hit the wall just about every 30 minutes. <laughs>
6: well, there's, this, there's this great line of Einstein's where he said, creativity is the residue of time wasted. And I think what he's trying to get at is that a lot of our best ideas do come when we've left work behind, when we are doing stuff that to some outsider is going to look like we are just wasting time, we are goofing off. You know, that's often what you need to do. You know, once you've hit the wall, once you've stopped making progress, and, and it's important to really work until you feel like you've hit the wall, then you have to make time to waste time. Can you tell me the story of the invention of Post-it notes? This is a story that features Art Fry. He was an engineer at 3M. And he had heard a presentation by Sheldon Silver, who had invented this very, very weak glue. He was a chemist at 3M. And for years, no one had known what to do with this weak glue. Because, right, if you want a glue, it's to make stuff stick together. What's the purpose of a glue that barely works at all? So it had just sat on the shelf at 3M for years, just because, you know, it seemed like a totally useless product. A glue that doesn't work? That's idiotic. And so one day, Art Fry, he sings in his church choir, and he's singing in the choir... But he's got this very annoying thing that happens to him every Sunday, which is he puts the bookmarks in his choral book to mark the pages of the songs you're going to sing that week. But then, as so often happens, the bookmarks fall out. Then he's got to frantically reinsert them to keep his place. And so one day he's sitting in church, and this has just happened to him, so he's full of frustration. And you know he's listening to this very tedious sermon; it's even a little more boring than usual. And his mind starts to wander. He gets lost in this daydream. And it's in the midst of the daydream that he has this great idea, that he should take this very weak glue that's been sitting on the shelf at 3 m and he should coat his bookmarks in the weak glue. And maybe that glue would be weak enough where it would let the bookmark stick to the pages, but not so strong that when he moved the bookmarks the next week, that they would tear the pages with them. And so that's what he did. And it took a few more weeks of iteration and getting the chemistry just right. But those removable bookmarks would eventually give rise to the post-it notes. So the post-it notes were born in the midst of this daydream while listening to a tedious sermon in church.
3: I I don't know if this is a good example of stick-to-itiveness,
6: or maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) What was interesting is, even after he got posted notes right, so he got the chemistry just right, they still couldn't figure out what to do with them because if you give people a pad of these, you know, posted notes in development, turns out people didn't want extra, you know, versions of them because they just kept on moving them from page to page. They almost reusable. worked too well. Yeah, they were too reusable. And of course 3M is in the business of selling products that people consume and want to buy more of. And so it wasn't until they encouraged people to write on them to actually become little memo pads post posted notes took off. So even, even then, it still took lots of situativeness. It was several years in between that daydream in the church and actually post notes becoming a popular product. That's
3: remarkable that the marketing drove the, uh, the ultimate use of this product. Uh, th- does it help to be young or, or maybe an outsider when it comes to approaching things in a new way? I mean, in science, it's often said, certainly by older scientists, that you know, the next great breakthrough will probably come from somebody under the age of 25 or something. <laughs>
6: It does help to be young, but it helps to be young because youth are outsiders, because they know less. That's why they can see more. Um, I think this is best demonstrated by the work of Dean Simontine. He's a psychologist at UC Davis, and he's amassed for you know over decades. Um, these tables called peak ages of creativity and they're different for every field So it turns out if you're a physicist or a poet you're gonna have your peak age of creativity pretty young probably in your early 30s And and these curves are pretty sad looking because there's this sh- steep ascent in which case you you know You get good really quickly and by the time you 30 31 you begin your long slow steady decline Now for a long time people assumed that the loss of creativity over time was inevitable that the imagination simply fell apart a bit like long-term memory, kind of disintegrated as we got older. That's no longer what people believe. Instead, they believe that, that the loss of creativity over time is really a byproduct of what Simonson calls enculturation, that the more time people spend in a field, they become invested in the status quo, they develop habits and routines, ways of thinking, and it's that enculturation, it's all those habits, that's what makes them less creative, that's what makes it harder for them to think outside the box. So that's why history is also full of people like Bob Dylan and Pablo Picasso and Paul Erdos, people who find a way to stay creative throughout their entire careers. That's often because they constantly risk reinvention. They're always seeking out new ways to write songs, new ways to paint a painting, new mathematical problems to tackle, that that because they're always challenging themselves, they stay creative across their entire career.
3: How how useful is creativity for survival? I mean I can imagine it's useful for the species to have a, you know, a certain percentage of the population that's creative, but is it of terribly
6: much use for the individual? I think it is. I mean I think creativity has has crafted the world we live in. You know, when you look around at this world, I mean you can look around at this room, it's we are entirely surrounded by our own inventions. Um it is very tough to imagine anyone in the absence of human creativity, it is it is a defining trait of our species. Um, now, I think your question does raise the point about, you know, in terms of survival, I think our creativity may also be our undoing. Um, we have created a world that is so full of our things, it's also unsustainable. This is nicely illustrated by the theoretical physicist Jeffrey West, who does these back-of-the-envelope calculations, where he's shown that to power a human body at rest, it takes about 90 watts just to pump our blood, feed the brain, and so on. To sustain a hunter-gatherer lifestyle takes about 250 watts. Now you can ask yourself, well, how much energy does it take to fuel the 21st century American lifestyle? And the answer, it turns out, is 11,000 watts. And then you can ask yourself, well, what kind of animal requires 11,000 watts to live? And the answer is two blue whales. Each of our lives is roughly equivalent in terms of the energy it requires to sustain to two blue whales. And that neatly captures just how unsustainable human existence, or at least American existence in the 21st century has become that. There is no way the Earth can sustain 700 million blue whales, let alone 7 billion blue whales. Now the question becomes, you know, how do we escape this trap? How do we take this unsustainable lifestyle and make it more sustainable? Well, the only possible solution is more creativity. The only way we're going to get out of this mess is with more innovation. So, in a sense, this is the paradox. The only fix for our creativity which has made this wonderful splendid lifestyle, which is not sustainable, is more creativity. So, one can only hope that somehow we're able to invent ourselves out of this fix.
3: I'm sure I'm not being creative here, but it seems to me there there are two obvious solutions here. One, teach humans to eat krill or, uh, <laughs> or or secondly, uh, you know, of the 90 watts that we take for our bodies, 25 of those watts are for the brain. Yeah. So just excise the brains. Well,
6: <laughs> I might go for the krill there. <laughs> I've never had krill. but That strikes me as a slightly more feasible option.
3: <laughs> you spend a long time with each meal. Jonah Lair, thanks for being with us.
6: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Jonah Lehrer is the author of Imagine How Creativity Works, and how we're going to work right now is we're going to pick up these boxes, throw out some of this stuff, congratulations Seth. I'm, I'm proud of you for getting rid of some of this stuff.
3: Yeah. Well, it's another two soda cans anyhow.
1: Okay. So I'll carry this out of here. What are you yeah. going to carry?
3: Um, I have to supervise, Molly. Somebody needs to supervise. <laughs> Supervi- no, no, no,
1: supervise my back. Okay. I'll carry this. Ah. Oh, geez. Thanks to our production staff. Ooh, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. I wish they were all here to help carry these boxes.
3: Also support from Rena Scholsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to Seth Storm Shelter. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
3: (laughs) If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, I don't know, you hate the thought of an empty ether, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. All right, Molly, would you uh, grab that box of soup cans, uh, will you? I'll, I'll get the light.